from Drop Biscuit Studios and AJ Benzie. Fame is a bitch. Hey everybody, AJ Benzie here. This is your Fame is a bitch for Monday, June 20th, 2022. Let's call it Manic Mondays. We all, you know what? Let's call it Mafia Monday. Yeah, I like the sound of that. Mafia Monday. Boy, do I have stories to tell you about Mafia. Can't tell you much about the New Orleans Mafia that I kind of hung around with while in New Orleans, but that was a trip and uh, great to meet those guys and see those guys and um, share some stories that we all knew, even though we're from different parts of the country. They knew my names, I knew their names, and um, just real, real good people. Um, but these stories I'm going to tell you today are uh, a little closer to me than I would have liked because uh, when I was back uh, at the New York Daily News as a gossip columnist, well, it goes even way before that. As many of you know, and some of the new listeners from Drop Biscuit don't know, back in the 80s, mid-80s, I was working at a, for a sports tout company, which was, uh, this was a, kind of a business that was jumping, just jumping to the moon at this point. They were popping up everywhere. And what they were were, Sports touts who would, uh, we'd call gamblers. Let's say we got a list of names from Las Vegas casinos. And these names were passed around these different businesses. And we'd cold call these men, mostly men, very few women back then. And we'd uh, see how they were doing when it came to uh, handicapping their own games. Football, basketball, baseball, college, you name it, college and pro. And most guys we got the numbers from were gamblers. They would put money down and pay their bookie almost every week, and once in a while, their bookie would pay them because gambling is not a 50-50 type of activity. You lose more than you win. So we would be real sharp on the phones, and uh, we had a lot of shit, let's, let's say, and we would convince these gamblers that we could make them win more because we were better handicappers. We had a better handicappers in our office, and we, we, we promoted this or these handicappers, and we basically sold these guys over the phone it's not hard to sell a gambler that you have inside information or you know exactly what you're doing better than he does. You've got people on the inside. All those sorts of things will make a gambler, some of whom are degenerate gamblers, take a shot with you. And typically the way it worked was, look, uh, whatever you, you, you bet my games for a week with your bookmaker and I'll tell you how much to bet or you tell me what you can bet and we'll keep a running tab all week. I'll call you every night give you my games, you bet them, tell me how much you bet on them, we'll keep a tab, and at the end of the week, whatever you win, send me 20% of your earnings. And most guys would do that. They were stand-up guys, many many of them wouldn't, many of them would, would walk away, but when they walked away, what are they doing? They're walking away from someone who's winning, and if you're winning for them, they'll stick around. Sure, if you lose for them in the first week, it's hard to get them back on board. But if you win, and win big, they're gonna stick around, and then little by little, they bet more money and before you know it, the, the, the $100 a game better is now betting 500 a game, 1000 a game, 5000 a game. And I had guys betting up to 50000 a game. And to get 20% of that, like at the end of the week, when a guy wins $200,000, $400,000, that's a lot of money coming into you, most of the time cash, via Western Union or FedEx truck. Just money in a box. And those things would come to our office quite a bit. We had three offices with about 60 guys working in there. One handicapper, three different companies, but they all were in the same company. It was media, profit line, and major wager. And I was really good at this. I was 21 years old, 22 years old. 
I got out of college, didn't have a journalism job yet outside of part-time work. This is a great thing to do. It was four hours a night, maybe three or four hours a day on Saturday, and you were done. Got your games out, tried to get new guys on board, and then went home and watched the games. And back then, we called Sports Phone. We didn't have Sports Center. We had to call a phone number that gave the sports. And the guy who gave the sports was named Ian Eaglin. Now, he's a very big professional broadcaster on the major networks, bringing you football and basketball, etc. So, in its infancy, it was a big deal. Once I had a couple of gamblers that really bet big money, I wanted to make more money. So I said, why don't you not use your bookmaker in Colorado or in uh, you know, Missouri, wherever they lived. Use my guy in New York. And I only said that because my guy happened to be the former godfather of the Gambino crime family, John Gotti. He wasn't godfather yet, but he had his hands in a bookmaking operation. And what he did with me was something called half sheets, which is to say that um, if I brought in a new gambler into his operation, whatever that gambler lost the first week, I would get half of that amount. God loses 10 grand, I get five grand. It was easy money. And on top of that, I used to convince these guys they've got to put money up front so they can't flee if they lost. So I tell them, you got to put up 5,000 good faith. Now, God, he knows guys didn't know that. That was my side hustle. On the, it, that was my side hustle inside the side hustle. But anyhow, I do that for a few years, not a few years, uh, several months of the year. Gotti becomes godfather. I had a big gambler that uh, didn't want to pay after a while and didn't really understand who he was dealing with. His name was Paul Hicks. I said, Paul, you got to know who you're dealing with. This is not your local bookie in Missouri or Colorado. This is a big shot. This is a guy that can hurt you. So do me a favor. You own 13000 pay him next week. Promise me. Because he was, Gotti was leaning on me and my cousin. He promised me he'd pay him. Next week comes along, he sends Gotti a check for $500. That's an insult to smack in the face. On Thanksgiving morning, I get a phone call from John Gotti telling me that me and my cousin are going to go to Colorado to find this guy, whose name was Paul Hicks, <clears throat> and get his money for him. I was petrified. Okay, It never came to fruition. Gotti becomes godfather, and in a matter of weeks after December 15th, I believe it was, 1985, he dropped it. He just dropped it. So I was so petrified of that phone call, I never wanted to be around that kind of element again. But I'm not going to lie, I did find it exciting. So now let's fast forward. It's the 90s. I'm now a New York Daily News gossip columnist. I'm a nightlife guy. I'm out every night at the strip clubs, in the nightclubs, you name it. New York is a big mafia town, and I got to know a lot of these guys. A lot of these guys in the Gambino crew and the Genovese crime family crew, I knew. I knew the bosses, the capos, the soldiers, the associates. I knew dozens and dozens of guys in and around New York City and the outer boroughs. So because of that, I got to be a knock-around guy. Hung around these guys at nightclubs and strip clubs, and they got to like me. And at one point, one of them asked me if I would be so willing to uh, throw a party at his club, Rouge, one night a week, uptown Manhattan, so I can invite my fancy friends from downtown, the guys who sip champagne, and the women who sip champagne. And me and Chico, my partner, my roommate, would get the door money, and the guys who ran Rouge, which was my, mainly mafiosa outside of another guy I'm going to tell you about in a second, they would keep the, the bar money, etc. So me and Chico and this guy Jimmy Christmas did just that. We threw parties, we named them all different kind of funny names, and uh, Rouge had a bunch of gangsters in it all the time, namely a guy named Joe Watts, who was in the Gambino and the Gotti crew who, who pulled the trigger 
on Paul Castellano. He was one of the trigger men on Paul Castellano in that big murder in front of Spark Steakhouse in New York that made Guy the boss. We had guys like tough Tony Parmesano. We had uh, quiet Don Cirillo. We had so many tough guys. Ralphie Coppola, who was a big Genovese capo. And uh, Bucky, I think it was Bucky Carbone. A crazy guy, a cowboy. Did a lot of blow, but was frightening when he was high, and he was always high. So I want to backtrack now. I'm throwing parties at Rouge. The guy who owned Rouge was a Greek kid named Stratus Morfogan. Stratus had the Midas touch when it came to New York City restaurants and um, diners and shit and, and, and clubs. He used to own a place called the uh, Gotham City Diner back in 93, Upper East Side. Really famous place, very popular place. He had his mobsters there as well. And he knew of mobsters because as a kid, he knew them through his father. Okay, but they called Stratus the Golden Greek. Now, his book just came out. And his book is called Be a Disruptor, Streetwise Lessons for Entrepreneurs from the Mob to Mandates. Stratus now runs uh, the Brooklyn Chop House in Lower Manhattan, and he names names in this book. And I loved what I read because it brought back a lot of memories, especially the guys I just told you about, Ralphie Coppola and Bucky Carbone and John Gotti Jr., etc. But when he first opened his first Manhattan diner, Back in the mid-90s, 93, he had uh, the mob make its way in. Now, typically, what happens is, and what happened with him was, he had this kid named Noel Ashman who was working for him. Noel went on to own a bunch of nightclubs in Manhattan. They just made a documentary about it. It might go to Netflix. I'm a part of that as well. I talk about Noel and nightlife back in the 90s. So Noel had a big presence, but he was just starting back then. He was the head of promotions for Stratus. One day, Noel comes in with a black guy. And uh, he says, Stratus says, what the hell is going on? Now, I got this from the New York Post because these are all excerpts from his book. Stratus says, what's going on, Noel? He says, some gangsters said we have to pay them every month and they're going to continuously start beating us up. And uh, he pointed out some of the names. And right away, uh, Stratus recognized two of them as Gambino guys. Now, like I said, he wasn't naive about the mafia. He grew up on Long Island in the 70s. His family owned a restaurant in Howard Beach where the mob... Uh, Carlo Gambino, the mobster Carlo Gambino, was a regular, former godfather. And Gambino would always slip, Stratus, who was six years old at the time, he'd slip in $20 bills and ask him about school, how he's doing, keeping nose clean, that kind of elderly presence. So after Stratus opened his first joint, he would get visits from this Genovese crime family, Ralphie Coppola and Bobby Bucky Carbone. Now, Coppola was the underboss to Barney Belomo. But he got so close that he called Stratus Smartfogan nephew. And Bobby and Bucky Carbone entertained him with tales from the other side. And those guys are real colorful. I spent many nights with those guys at different bars and clubs, sitting at the tables in tight booths. And when they get to talking, it's a lot of fun. They tell you wild stories, just like I heard in New Orleans last week. One night, Bucky told the story of the first man he killed. And it was a bar, it was, a, it was a, because of a debt collection gone wrong at a bar. But John Gotti's crew, John Gotti Jr.'s crew, was very different. Gambino died back in 1976, and John Gotti was behind bars thanks to testimony from Sammy the Bull Gravano. But while he was away, his son, John Gotti Jr., started to run the show and uh, intimidating people like Stratus, who owned restaurants and nightclubs. This is back in the 90s. So um, John Gotti and his crew, Stratus says, that's what they lived on. They would shake down every restaurant from the Upper East Side to Midtown. And as a new kid on the block, it was Stratus' turn to pony up some dough. 
or at least that's what two of Gotti Jr.'s top honchos thought one night. And Stratus, who was not a big dude, not a muscular dude, but didn't take any shit, he said, what do you guys want? And they said, we want 5000 a month, or we're going to break your windows every week. I said, let me give you the quick answer, Stratus says. Go fuck yourself. That's how he was. He had no fear at all back then. A couple of nights later, someone starts throwing black paint on the diner's windows every night. And Stratus would go out and scrub them down each morning to make sure they were nice and clean again for that night's business. Ralphie Coppola noticed this is happening, and he said to Stratus, sit tight. Don't worry about nothing. I got this. Two days later, Stratus gets a phone call from the Ralphie's guys. Tell them to come to a restaurant called Ferrier, a very popular bistro called Ferrier on the Upper East Side. So when he gets there, Ralph is there with Bucky, and all the Gambino capos are in the back sitting around. So he sits down with Ralph and Bobby and the five heads of the Gambino family. And Ralph basically says to the guys in the Gambino crew, listen, this kid is with us, and you tell John Gotti Jr. to back off, for if he doesn't back off, this thing is going to escalate. And Stratus has said his head just spun around like, you know, the guys turned around and said, all right, we like this kid. He's a good kid. Don't worry. We'll talk to John Jr. We'll squash this. And lo and behold, it was squashed. That's the kind of power Ralphie Coppola had back then. And just like that, and I know how this goes because I was put under his protection as well. Stratus was under the protection of the Genovese boys. And uh, look, when they protect you, they protect you. I had a situation where once uh, I was dating a girl from a nightclub that uh, Stratus owned and Ralphie was, a uh, well, some of the money came from Ralphie as well. Uh, one of the guy, one of the girls I was dating, uh, Rebecca, uh, she had an ex-boyfriend who wouldn't leave her alone. In fact, one night he snuck up a fire escape and tried to get into a sliding glass door because he heard that she was like that she liked me or she was being seen with me. So I didn't know what to do. I was often sleeping over there. I don't want this guy to walk in the room and attack us and shit or attack her. I went to the guys. I said, listen, I got to tell you something. You might know Rebecca's ex-boyfriend. This is what he's doing. They said the same thing. Sit tight. We'll take care of it. Three nights later, they took care of it. I don't think that kid walked too much anymore. I mean, he, they, they busted his legs up for going up there to try to hurt Rebecca. But they said, look, she's with AJ. He's with us. Back the fuck off. Now, when they do something like that, you generally know you owe them a favor. Now, I like these guys a lot. It was fun to be around them. As a journalist, I kind of felt untouchable, so to speak, because they generally don't hit, uh, they, don't, they don't mess around with journalists. It's too messy. So, um, you know, I felt like, okay, I can, get, I can get away with some stuff. Maybe they won't come after me. And by and large, they never came after me. But there was one night that it got really nasty, and I'll tell you about that in a second. But these guys would do anything for you. If they, if they broke this guy's legs for me, I mean, for, for Stratus, who was making real money for them, not just once a week, like all the time, Bucky put an ice pick into a thigh of an employee who he believed stole 30 grand from the diner. And he wanted nothing in return. It was true friendship. So, I, obviously, it was friendship, but Ralphie had become kind of a silent partner in the business of his. But following then the success of the Gotham City Bar, that's when Stratus opened up Rouge with silent backing from Ralphie. And that's where I made a lot of my nights, and my buddy Chico was like security there, and all the girlfriends worked behind the bar. It was tremendous. Things were fantastic. The club became very famous one night when the New York Rangers captain, Mark Messier, brought the Stanley Cup there. First Stanley Cup, and I forget how many years, 50 years for the Rangers. Mark Messier was a god. He'll always be a god in New York. And um, that actually, it's funny. That night, they brought the Stanley Cup there. They also brought the scores where Chico was working, and they forgot it scores. And Chico, they all thought each other had it. There's like seven of them. 
and Chico brought the Stanley Cup to our house. I got tickets to go to the game, the final game, game seven of the Net Rangers Stanley Cup finals. And I said no, because I had a date with a girl named Tasha, a beautiful model named Tasha. Chico says, can I go? I said, you go. He loved hockey and he loved the hockey guys. So he goes with the press pass, has a ball with the guys, goes in the locker room for the champagne celebration. Just kids' wildest dreams, right? He comes home one night, late at night after work, 4 o'clock in the morning, with the Stanley Cup in his hands. So I go from not caring about going to the Stanley Cup game to seeing the Stanley Cup in my apartment. And all the guys had sipped wine through it, sipped beer out of it, and did some other crazy shit to it. It's a very famous thing that hockey players do with the Stanley Cup once they win. But it was huge. Um, it put Rouge on the map when Messi bought that cup there. I mean, it was so big and so busy that Stratus in his book says that one night he actually turned away Madonna and Tupac at the door because he didn't recognize them. But because it was so popular, it did one time catch the attention of a West Coast mobster who wanted to buy his way into the New York City nightlife. It was a Jewish gangster from L.A. I don't know his name and nor does Stratus even remember but he sat Stratus down inside his own club and tried making him an offer he couldn't refuse. He says, takes out, he takes out a pen and he writes on a napkin, $10,000. Then he pulls out a nine millimeter, pops out a bullet and puts it on the table. And he says to Stratus, it's this or that. But Stratus wasn't worried. He didn't get the memo. He didn't know the most powerful people in the world were already protecting him, right? So Stratus immediately brought this up to Ralphie Coppola and Bucky Carbone, and they couldn't stop laughing. So, cut to, he walks in the club at 1 a.m. on one Saturday night, and Ralphie and Bucky and the L.A. gangster are all sitting in the back in the VIP room, having a great time, drinking champagne. But Stratus isn't, isn't happy about this. He's looking pissed off. Why there's so many laughs? 4.30 in the morning, they're still there. They're still drinking. He walks up to the table. He says, you guys having a good time? He was kind of pissed off. And you never forget, Ralphie says to him, nephew, we're having a great time. And he, he gave me eyes like, get away, just go away. You don't want to be here, but it's going to happen next. So Stratus walks away. He got the message. As he's walking away, he heard, he heard Ralphie say, let's get down to business. I heard your offer, and here's my counteroffer. And as he said that, he took a 60-pound candelabra and hit the guy over the head. Then Bucky came running to get Stratus, to get out of the nightclub, puts him in a taxi, because the fight's still going on. When Stratus gets to Rouge next day, there's no blood on the floor, but he did notice that an area rug, an area piece of carpet was gone. So clearly, these guys beat this guy up so badly, probably killed him, wrapped him up in a, in a carpet, and got rid of the body. That was something that happened around New York a lot in those days. And these guys and that crew, neither of whom were alive anymore, uh, and, you know, Ralphie was murdered for not kicking up enough money to the top, I heard. There's all sorts of rumors about why he was killed, but it's a sad story. He was a great guy. But that's the kind of loyalty that was shown to Stratus for many more years. He knew Ralphie would always have his back, which is why he was shocked one day when he got married in 1998. Ralphie and his wife were invited, and their chairs are empty. And Bucky come up to him and says, Ralphie's gone. He says, what? What do you mean? He said, Ralphie's gone. Don't ask anymore. Years later, we found out that Ralphie went into a meeting in Harlem and never came out of the house. That's all he knows even now. I heard that they ended up finding Ralphie. He turned up in an oil drum. And like I said earlier, I heard he didn't kick up enough money to the real boss, Barney Belomo. But um, it's a scary thing when these guys get so close to you and you go to like them, even love them, and then they're gone. And 
as Stratus says in his book, he didn't want any part of it anymore. And that's what happens. You get such a bad taste in your mouth. You get so frightened that you want to be away from it as far as possible. And if you're lucky, you can do just that. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. And then he says, he says, Stratus said he felt the mob wasn't the friend to him it once had been. In 2005, he was struggling. He was divorced. He lost his old business. Didn't get any calls from any of those guys to see if he needed anything. You know, Ralph would have been calling him every day. But a few years and business ventures later, the mafia comes knocking on his door back in 2006. This time, it's a Genovese associate. And the associate came on behalf of two couples who wanted an envelope from Stratus who had just gotten back on his feet. And in the book, he says, the answer was the same he gave Gotti's crew a few years back when he was just starting out. He says, tell them to go fuck themselves. I said, don't make me into a rat. I'm done with you guys. They never came back or bothered him again. And I'll tell you, when I think back about those days, man, oh, They came to life again when I sat down the other night in New Orleans, like I told you, with these new friends of mine. Obviously, guys like my New York City friends, only they're in the Big Easy, and it's crazy. I don't know what it is, how we all end up getting around telling war stories, but we had a ball. So I spoke to Stratus the other day. He was asking if I had any pictures of those days from the nightclub Rouge, and he knew the Post was going to do a story. He wanted some photos to go with it. I don't have them. They're in storage. I wish I did. There were no iPhones back then. If I did, I'd have a million pictures and memories, but all I have now is memories. You have to live your life really vividly and strong so you remember it many years later. That's why I'm able to tell so many stories like I do now. That reminds me when I was asked by a New York Magazine writer who was profiling me many years ago why I never believed in carrying around a notepad or a pen when I was covering events. And I said, for me, I have to live it see it and feel it and commit it to memory and write it down the next day or when I get home. I can't do it while I'm there. I lose perspective. I write it down tomorrow. It works for me. doesn't work for everybody. But I'll tell you, we used to go to, uh, you know, Chico started working at Rouge and uh, I was there every night. That's where I met Ali Salerno, great guy, the nephew of the famous mobster, Fat Tony Salerno. Ali was like a manager there. And, um, just there was a, a lawyer named Patrick Patty Stiso who was uh, who was there. I think he was a part owner as well, or maybe I think no, the liquor license was in his name because he was legit, or so we thought. But I didn't know. We we got to talking again. Stratus never liked Chico. I didn't know this unless I forgot. Never liked him because Chico choked him one night in a nightclub before we really even knew each other too well. I'm not sure, but sometimes Chico could blow up for reasons unknown. 
But there were so many guys Stratus and I reminisced about the other day through Facebook Messenger. You know, like I said, heard the Ralphie story, why he was killed, and uh, Barney Belomo's story. Bucky died as well. He even tried to put a hit on the guy who owned the restaurant, Ferrier, that Stratus had that meeting in because he told Ralphie just how much cocaine Bucky was consuming and causing problems while he was at the club, the guy who owned Ferrier. So he ratted out on, on, on Bucky's cocaine problem, and they were going to knock him off. It's crazy. There were, there were times when made guys had to be dispatched to Bucky's apartment because the hookers he called up would begin to ransack his apartment once he passed out. And he was causing a lot of problems. Truthfully, he was a lot like Al Pacino's character in Donnie Brasco, but younger and crazier, if you can believe it. But the guy with the liquor license was under, was under the name of the London lawyer, Patrick Stiso, and he was always there. Nice suit and tie guy. Turns out he was laundering money for the Colombian drug cartel. He did 15 years. He gets out again a couple of years ago, and he's being indicted again now. The guy rode around in armored Mercedes-Benz. What makes things even crazier, all these guys and I were on the same flag football league team in Central Park. We'd play once a week on a beautiful field in Central Park. And here you have all these mobsters and associates. Then there's me, a New York Daily News journalist. And we needed the best uniforms in the league, so Ralphie spent a fortune to have us all have the NFL-grade jerseys. And if you were the other team, once you knew who you were playing, once you knew that our team was full of made guys, do you think, you think that'd make a difference in how they played the game? I mean, we had these tough guys who'd play with beepers on their belts in case they were needed for something important, something urgent. This one time, Ralphie, who always quarterbacked, uh, sent me out to catch a slant pass pattern uh, to maybe win the game. And I remember actually being nervous that I might drop the ball because he was so competitive and wanted to win so badly. And when I did catch the ball, we all went crazy. And later that night, all went to a joint up in Westchester County and ate like kings and drank up their entire restaurant supply of port wine and grappa. These are gangsters. And I got to go to work in the morning and write a column. But they liked having me in their pocket, so to speak. And Sometimes people think that might be the reason why I lost my job at the Daily News. It could be. Maybe I got too close to them and they didn't like the way that went. But there was a great story that one day Ali comes up to me. What happened? He says he, he, he calls me at work. It's the middle of Oscar season. I got to write a column about Hollywood because I'm going to the Oscars in a week or so. So the whole week is a column about the Oscars and about Hollywood. And Ali calls me and says, hey, pal, can you come to Esposito's? Esposito's is a place on Ninth Avenue. It was a butcher shop since 1932 or so, but they got great sandwiches there, some lasagna here and there, a small menu, but it was delicious. And they'd make sandwiches for us, like I said, pastas, and real mob kind of a joint, old school. And rumor has it that that was the butcher shop who supplied the real horse's head for the famous scene, The Godfather. But uh, so we're eating there, and Ali says, uh, hey, pal, you can help me with this Barney thing? And I didn't know what he meant. And what can I say? Barney was in jail, and like I said, even though it was the week of the Oscars, and they had done that favor for me by knocking around that kid who was chasing Rebecca, and I had to go to L.A., I had to listen to whatever the hell Ali wanted and get it done. Now, Ali was the nephew, like I said, fat Tony Salerno, one of the greatest monster characters you'll ever see, the guy with the short cigar, fat guy. When, all, when Giuliani got all those guys rounded up and put in jail for the last time with the big Rico, Rico charge, Fat Tony's the guy who said when they asked him, uh, hey, Tony, you got something to say before you go away? He said, yeah, go fuck yourself. That's the way he was, the last of a dying breed. So I had to listen to whatever Ali wanted me to do. 
And uh, he carried a lot of weight in town. So he managed Ruse, like I said, great guy. He got me my table at Rails, after all. I would never have been to Rails every week had Ali not given me his table for, to, to take. I mean, that's big time stuff. You don't just get a table at Rails. You got to be there for years. You got to be grandfathered in. You can't call for a table. Everybody's got a table on every night of the week. There's like eight tables in the joint, and they're always taken. So when you get a table, you've got to make it every night, a table of six or a table of eight. It's your responsibility. If people can't show up and the numbers die down, it's on you. It doesn't look good. You'll lose your table. So every week, a table of six, whether it's family or friends, you've got to make sure they make it there. And if the food was delicious, this is before Rails was on the, on the shelves of your supermarket in your local town. There was just one restaurant in, uh, up in Harlem, Spanish Harlem, 113th Street. It was fantastic and just out of the movies. In fact... Martin Scorsese cast many of his movies. He cast a lot of extra roles and real-time roles with gangsters he saw and characters he saw at Rail. So he also employed Chico at the club, Rouge, which was good for me. Chico had some money in his pocket. I had to pay the whole rent myself. So he did a lot for me. So I couldn't say no to him. He says, hey, pal, our friend Barney beat a lie detector test on a murder rap. Maybe you could put that in your column. When he comes out, he'd be more appreciative. You could do that for me, pal. Now, I tried to tell him, this is Oscar week. You know, the entire column was about Hollywood. How in the world could I slip in a story about a gangster who beat a lie detector test? And all he said was, I got faith in you, pal. And Bonnie will be very happy. And I had to do it. I had to sell my editors and why that was going in a gossip column and why it wasn't going in, you know, a different part of the paper or maybe even the guys who ran the gangland column Jerry Capici and, and Phil Mustaine, maybe they would have it. Jerry Mustaine and Phil, no, Jerry Capici and um, Phil Mustaine? I might be wrong on the first name there. Oh, I never forget his name. Either way, they're great writers. They used to have a mob column called Gangland. Only in New York we have a column about gangsters, but we did because it happens. A lot of news occurs because of gangsters in New York. So I wrote the article. My editors, my editors kind of rolled their eyes like, here comes Asia with another crazy story, but... I said, I have to do this. It's a thing. These guys are real. <laughs> I'll get in trouble if I don't. And they understood. Thank God, Larry Hackett. And uh, you know, just they just said, okay, go right ahead and do it. We don't want to know nothing. But I remember when I, re when I retained uh, Ali's confidence for the first time and his faith, he had a great-looking wife, Lawrence, sweetheart of a girl, a little bit younger than me back then. And she did a little PR for Rouge and... She would get me to write items in my column about Rouge before I started going there. And eventually, I started to go to the club a lot. And like I said, my girlfriend worked behind the bar, and it'd be 3 a.m. or so, and he grabbed me and asked me if I could drive his wife home. Hey, pal, you do me a favor? You run Lauren up to the house? You know, I don't want some scumbag grabbing her from the car, from the cab to the front door. It mean a lot to me, pal. So, of course, I drive her home. Don't flirt. Don't say anything wrong. Just drive. Uh, of course. Ah, are you crazy? And I did, but I'd be lying if I said when I looked at her, I didn't want to flirt her. She was beautiful, but we're all still friends to this day. But it's an amazing time. I can't wait to dive into Stratus's book. And by the way, there was a night when a couple of made guys, like I mentioned earlier, Joe Watts from the Gambino crew and tough Tony Parmesano would be sitting in their booth. And one night, Joe spots a wire. 
Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Now, Joe Watts was a heavyweight for John Gotti. Like I said, one of the shooters on the hit on Paul Castellano. He was also a major moneymaker. He created the whole phone card business. Like if he was legit, he'd be a titan in telecommunications right now. But he was a tough guy and a killer. He actually just got into prison again like a few weeks ago. So one night, Joe sees a wire behind the booth he was sitting in at Rouge. And he stops everything. Because he sees this wire and he starts pulling out like a maniac. And he's yanking at it like crazy. And, 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 he, and he's doing this. He's pulling up booths, uh, other booths. Next thing you know, the wire's against the bottom of the wall. And he's pulling it as if the, the molding is exploding off the bottom of the wall. And he thinks he's uncovered this big wire tap. And he's sweating and angry. Ralphie jumps in. He's helping him, cursing. The, the, the one last mighty pull, he yanks the wire and the whole sound system in the nightclub goes out. It wasn't a surveillance wire. It was a fucking speaker wire. But, you know, those guys can get very paranoid for obvious reasons. But Joe wasn't always crazy. He used to come in with a knot of money in his hand, a knot of cash, and grab Chico and say, how many guys you got working security tonight? How many bartenders you got? And Chico would tell him, yeah, you know, 11, 12 people. He'd say, here's four or five grand. Whack it up with everybody. And the bartenders and the security guys, they would literally be able to pay their rent when Joe Watts came to the club. One night of work... Joe shows up, they know they're going to make their rent. Because most people will live in hand to, well, let's say paycheck to paycheck for the most part. But when Joe came in, you knew it's going to be a great month because he handed out cash like it was like it was uh, potato chips. And the female bartender's got money. My girlfriend used to get 100 bucks just to walk Joe's scotch and soda over to him at his booth. If you saw him walk in with Tough Tony, you made their, you made their scotch drinks, they didn't have to ask for it, you walked it over to them, boom, $100 bill. So... Girls used to love spotting Joe and Tough Tony first to make sure they were the ones walking his drink over. Because they're very generous guys, but very scary guys. And, um, you know, I mean, I can't wait to read this book. I hope I'm in it. I mean, I I don't think I'll be in it. But I was such a presence there because of my column and because of the, the parties we threw. But I don't know how much of the book is about Rouge and not about the rest of which Travis has built over the years. He's become incredibly successful in the restaurant business and... Next time I go to New York, when that's going to be, I'm going to check out Brooklyn Chop House because I'm told there's amazing food there. But if I'm being honest, there were some ugly times with those guys as well. You know, the times when I drive home and wonder, Jesus Christ, what did I just see? And why am I seeing this? You know, I mean, I, I just, I I, uh, I remember when there was a night where, there, where some guy across the street, a black guy, had um, was hanging around across the street. And we had people coming to our club 
men and women, married couples, people on dates, dressed really nicely, no sloppy dresses, suit and tie, the whole thing, women in dresses. And this guy's across the street, just making a ruckus, looking like shit, not homeless, but might as well be homeless. So a couple of the guys in front tell him the shit, yeah, get the hell out of here, take a walk, pal. He breaks a bottle. He breaks a bottle, and he's brandishing the bottle now that's broken in the middle of the street. Well, let me tell you something. A bunch of the guys ran out and started to kick the shit out of this guy. And I'm a, I'm a crazy guy back then. I start running after the crowd, too, because I went in. And I got to tell you, it's, it, it looked, looking back now, nobody cared what color he was. It could have been a guy, an Indian. It could have been a Chinese man. It could have been me. Anybody brandishing a bottle in a club like that was going to get the shit kicked out of them. So we start taking turns, hitting the guy with construction cones, you know, kicking him in the ass, punching him in the face. I got a few kicks in because the mobsters were really on the guy piling them up, just killing them. We left them on the side of the road in the middle middle of uh, Park Avenue. There's like a median there with grass and trees. Shit like that. One night, a couple of guys came in and they're ordering up a bunch of alcohol. Rebecca notices the card comes up stolen. Their credit card comes up stolen or says fraud, something like that. She reports it to Allie. Allie says, how much are they drinking? She says, a lot. He says, good. Let them keep drinking. So she just doesn't say a word. These guys keep drinking, keep ordering drinks and popping them back. And finally, Allie brings over a bottle of champagne. Hey, guys, I see you spent a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, it's a great club. Oh, good. Glad you're happy. Listen, guys, why don't you have some more drinks? Come to the back, meet my partners. We'll all have a nice drink on your arm. Oh, that's really nice of you. They go in the back. They meet the guys. Well, Allie says, I want to show you my wine collection. Come down to the basement. They go to the basement. He and a couple of guys put this one guy in a chair and hit him with phone books across the face. You robbed my fucking club? Well, you have no idea. This, this guy, he was ordered to go out and get the $5,000 they, they, they tried to fleece from the club with a fake credit card, and an extra thousand just for the bartender and alley to taste, right? He swore he'd do it before the morning. They said, if you don't do it, we have your license, we know who you are, we know where you live. He did it. He came back and somehow got that money for the next afternoon. That's the kind of shit I saw and was around, not on a nightly basis, but on a, on a pretty regular basis. And it got really bad one year where Chico, we had another friend named Johnny, um, Johnny, uh, you know, my, my, my Johnny Calvani, my good buddy, who used to sell pot years ago, right? He'd sell pot years ago. And um, a lot of guys who buy, who sell pot, uh, rack up a bunch of bills because weed smokers don't really pay for shit. They like Coke or other drugs where you pay on the spot. A lot of weed guys are go, I'll pay you next week, I'll pay you tomorrow. And you don't care because it's not huge amounts of money. So Johnny had this little book when he was broke about all the people owed him money. And it was a lot of people. So one day Chico says, what's this book? He says, this is all my, the guys that have outstanding debts from a couple of years ago. He said, I could have like $30,000 in my hand now, but it's on the street somewhere. Chico says, I'll get the money for you. Now this time, Ralphie had told me and Chico, you're around us, you're around me. Anybody bothers you, you say you're around Ralphie. And we had that like shield around us. So Chico says, I'll go out and get this money. He starts knocking on doors, getting guys in nightclubs, you owe Johnny Cavani money. And Johnny was getting some money back, he was happy. Suddenly, he comes upon one guy, and he does the same thing. You know, you owe this amount of money, the guy says, I'm not going to pay, I don't have it. Chico leans on him a little bit and says, I'm around Ralphie. Maybe you heard of Ralphie. I'm around Ralphie. Now, this kid, of all people, happened to be the son of a man who went to school with Ralphie. So when he tells his father, Dad, I'm in trouble, I owe money for a drug debt, the father says, who came to you? He says, some guy came to me and said he's around Ralphie. The guy picks the phone and calls his buddy from high school, Ralphie, you got a guy named Chico asking for drug money debt? Well, that was it. You can't ask for that kind of shit. 
You can't be around drugs if you're with those guys. You can't mention their name about drugs. They're very anti-narcotic, except for the fact that many of them sell on the side, but you can't make it so obvious and use their name to collect the drug debt. So they don't say nothing to us. They say, me and Chico to meet them at this place, Gino's, an Italian restaurant on the Upper East Side. Great meal, great food, we're laughing, you know, a lot of backpatting, bunch of wine, food like you couldn't believe. It's around 11 o'clock, Ralph says, hey, me and Chico are gonna talk business, you go do your thing, AJ. We'll see you next when they see you next week, next time, Monday, whatever the fuck it was. I said, all right, I'll see you guys. Thanks for everything. Hug and kiss the whole thing. We leave. I leave. Chico stays. I get a phone call an hour later from Chico. He could barely talk from a phone booth. He's in the middle of the street. They left him in the street. Beat the shit out of Chico because he used Ralphie's name. Bucky and Ralph went to town on him. They left him in the snow on the side of the street, right, where the, where the curb is and the snow is mounting and he's bleeding. And they beat him up so bad he needed a, 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 a screen put in his uh, stomach to keep his intestines in. It was a bad beating. Bucky said, I'll, I'll, if you come back, I'll shoot, I'll, shoot your, I'll shoot your mother, I'll kill your father. Just horrible, scary things. So I take Chico to the hospital, and I know what that meant. They were not happy with me because I vouched for Chico. I'm the guy who told him, you can hire him at the club. He's a good guy. He will do nothing wrong. Now I'm on the hook. Because I vouch for him. That's something about the mafia you can't do. You gotta, if you vouch for someone, you give your word, it better be good. So I knew I was in trouble. I called my buddy Joey. We called him Joey Zaza. He worked at the club with security. I said, Joe, you know what happened with Chico? I heard. He says, I said, what do I do now? What do I, he says, whatever you do, don't break your, uh, don't break your, the way you do things. Stay, stay. If you come to the club four nights a week, you better come four nights a week. If you, if you do something different, they're going to think it's suspicious. I said, all right, so I got to come in tonight, come in tonight. If they give you a beating, they give you a beating. They're not going to kill you. Like, that's how plainly he talked. Rebecca knew she was petrified. They weren't even nice to hell when I walked in, when she walked in. So I come in, I did my usual. I got my little glass of port wine. Then I got my espresso and Sambuca. I spit the beans out like I always do with her. She's like, why are you here? What are you doing? I said, I got to do it. I, I can't break my routine. And as I'm there, the guys who love me, Ralphie and Bucky, Patty, they're looking at me with, this, with such disdain and such anger on their faces that I thought I was going to either get jumped in the club, get taken down to the basement, or as soon as I walked out in the street, someone's going to pop me in the head with a right hand or a club or something. I left there. I didn't say, they didn't look, they didn't say goodbye to me. They didn't say, how you doing, pal? Just dead eye stares. And I left there petrified. Got to my car. Nothing happened. Drove home. Nothing happened. And I found out that they decided to let it go because I was too good to the club, too good to the guys. They knew it wasn't my fault that Chico was a loose cannon and, and, and played cowboy when he shouldn't have played cowboy. But uh, ever since then, they were never the right way to Chico again. That in that relationship. But mine continued until I was luckily called to L.A. to, LA to, to work in television and get out of New York in 1997. And not long after that, Ralphie had been uh, killed. Maybe a year after that, he was killed and... The landscape changed in New York. Now I don't know who's who and who's running anything. I don't know the guy's names or anything. It was 20 some odd years ago. But back when I knew them all, it was a lot of fun. And uh, that those two dinners in New Orleans reminded me of the kind of fun I had. Because those guys, we talk the same language, even though we're from a different part of the country and our accents might be different. But when it comes to honor and code and loyalty and street sense, what have you, we all sound exactly the same. And that can sometimes be very beautiful and fun. It could also be very petrifying and cruel. I'm AJ Benz, and that was your free show. June 20th, 2022, Mafia Monday. If you sign up to Patreon, you'll see me tomorrow.
through Friday. If you don't, you'll hear me Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And by all means, listen through dropbiscuit.com. It's not an app, it's a website. And in the coming weeks and months, there'll be things on that website that make listening to this show much better than other platforms. And I'll begin to tell you why momentarily, because Agavino's working on some things that are going to make this a much better way to listen. So be on the lookout for that. In the meantime, go to patreon.com slash fame is a bitch to hear me five days a week, or, or politics is a bitch. I'm sorry, or patreon.com slash politics is a bitch to hear two or three shows a week on my views about the politics that are taking place in this divided nation of ours. I'm AJ Benza for Fame is a Bitch, and I'll talk to you later. Thank you for listening. Fame is a Bitch is an AJ Benza Drop Biscuit Studios production featuring the endless wisdom, insightful commentary, and sometimes fucked up perspective of AJ Benza. Executive producer, Mike Agavino. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.